how would you feel if you sent your child to school, a supposed safe place, like any other ordinary day, but instead of picking them up afterwards, you're called to identify their body? In 2008, a crime almost too shocking to believe occurred in a school in the Johannesburg. Very soon, the media went wild, and accusations of the occult and Satanism dominated the headlines. In the midst of this satanic panic, not only was the victim forgotten, but the more plausible motives and factors that led to this crime were overlooked. So today, we're diving in to further understand the mind behind the samurai killer, Monet Haramsa. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. In order to understand a person, one must start at the beginning. Monet Haramza was born in 1989 to Michiel and Lisa Haramza. Three years later, his younger brother, Cornet, was born. The family were quite strict and the Christian religion was a vital part of both children's upbringing. Corporal punishment was also considered the norm in the household, with Michiel often crossing the proverbial line. This in itself leading to far greater issues later on, which we will get into pretty soon. Both boys later went on to attend Nick Dierdorf's technical high school. However, as he had grown up, Monet was much smaller in stature and size compared to other boys in his school and year. He had quite a baby face and was very thin too. This led to vast amounts of bullying, as I'm sure you're aware, teenagers can be extremely cruel. I mean, there's even songs written about them. His parents had allegedly spoken to the school and teachers on multiple occasions, but nothing was ever done and the bullying continued. Home life was a little different for Monet though. At home, within his room, within his safe space, he was the master of his own destiny. He collected swords of various sizes that his father had bought him over the years. He also had a great deal of privacy in the home, with him having the privilege of being able to lock his bedroom door whenever he pleased, according to statements by his parents later on. Even though outside of his room, the environment was sometimes far from being the greatest, Within his room, it was his sanctuary. It was a place where he listened to his favorite bands, Slipknot being one of them, and played video games. Pretty average teenage boy stuff. He also filled the space with items that he felt drawn to. Among these, tarot cards, masks, posters of Eastern influence, and little sculptures of dragons. He was also quite obsessed with ninjas, and he had a deep fascination for the culture that surrounded them. Among his bedroom contents, there were also detailed drawings of the school grounds, as well as a homemade Afrikaans Ouija board. 
Yeah, it sounds like a knockoff episode of Supernatural, but I'll get to that in a bit. Keeping all of that in mind though, it does appear that Monet wasn't a complete outcast at school though, and he did have a small group of close friends, I think there were about six boys in total. And it was with these boys that a plan was hatched, weeks and even months perhaps in the making, from Monet's side at least. The boys were all in grade 12, the very last year of school. Monet and his friends wanted to do something big, something to cause a stir, something with impressive consequences, as they had put it. They wanted to be noticed by their peers. It's unclear when exactly this idea was born, but on Friday, August 15th of 2008, the boys, as far as Monet was aware, had solidified their plans. They were going to commit a massacre at their school. Each boy had mentioned and discussed what he would be doing and the role that he would be playing. Some boys had the idea that an exploding device should be used, whereas other boys thought that they should rather use firearms. Monet so kindly also offered to bring extra swords and masks for the boys who did not have access to any weapons. Another boy, we'll call him Donnie, had also planned to make a homemade exploding device. And so, in Monet's mind, the plan was set. That very Friday, during class, the students were asked to discuss their plans for the future. Monet's answers should have definitely raised some red flags for the teachers and the staff. Monet had expressed the notion that he really wasn't prepared for exams and he didn't believe that his family had much faith in him. He followed that statement with the notion that he would rather be a bum in jail than a bum on the street. I mean, if that doesn't scream red flag to a teacher, then I'm not sure what does. It seems quite obvious, although now in hindsight, that there was something seriously wrong with Monet's thought pattern. And so with the day done, school ended and all of the boys went home their separate ways. Over the weekend, Monet sent Donnie a message to see how progress on making the device was going. Now, let's just pause right there. I mean, these boys are what, 17, 18 years old, with no prior experience, living with their parents and expecting to make this device and still keep it under wraps from their family and the people that they live with. Sounds like a great plan. Anyway, Donnie had responded and he had told Monet not to worry, everything was going according to plan. Monet would spend the weekend sharpening his swords in preparation. Also that weekend, Monet's parents, upon his request, had bought him a clown mask from the local fancy dress store in the area. And that Monday morning, the 18th of August, Monet was ready. He packed a large red bag with knee guards, elbow guards, gloves, as well as black paint, the weapons, three swords, one small knife and a sword belt, as well as the masks that the boys had discussed. He had brought three masks with him, all customized and inspired by one of his favorite bands, Slipknot, who changed their masks for every album they release. One mask was a clown mask, one resembled a gas mask, and the last was what Monet termed the maggot mask, a leather-looking mask with dreadlocks, inspired by the Volume 3 era of Slipknot. 
And so that morning he made his own way to school, which in itself was odd as his mother always dropped the two boys off at school in the mornings. And so Monet arrived just after 7am at school with all of his gear. He had immediately met his friend group and they had headed to the bathrooms. His one friend had put on a clown mask and armed himself with a sword, whilst the other boys were playing around with the weapons. During this time, Monet was putting his elbow and knee guards on. The friend that had been making the homemade device then brought it out, passed it to Monet and told him not to pull on the string as it would go off, but for some reason, the very first thing Monet did was pull on that string. Immediately, another boy had grabbed it from him and thrown it out the bathroom door. And they waited. And they waited. And nothing happened. Yeah, big surprise. The homemade device was a dud. In the next few minutes, the bell rang, which meant that assembly was starting soon, and so the boys had it taken off the masks, they had put the weapons down, and they had started to leave so that they could go to this assembly. Monet was stunned. In a minute, his friends, his partners in crime, had abandoned their great plan in order to go to a lame school assembly. I can only imagine that at that point he felt a mixture of disappointment, frustration, anger, and perhaps even embarrassment. To his already low self-esteem, this was a fatal knock. And it was also in that moment that Mornay realized that he was not going to stop. He placed the sword belt that he had brought with him around his waist and he holstered two smaller swords, a Sekizo ninja sword and a small katana. He then armed himself with his 60 centimeter long samurai sword. By this stage, he had already applied the black face paint in almost war markings and so he had placed the maggot mask back onto his face. It was around 20 past 7. He was ready. Just a few moments after he had exited the bathroom, a group of boys, some of his friends included, had bumped into him on their way to assembly. They stopped and they had laughed, thinking that this was a prank. Or something. The anger in Monet had reached boiling point, and seeing pure red, he had looked over to a group of matric girls who were walking past and said, Hey, do you want to see something cool? He then proceeded to raise his sword to the very first person he saw, which just so happened to be grade 10 student Jacques Pretorius. Now, for just a short moment, I want to tell you about Jacques Pretorius because no one has. I've watched a couple of videos and read so many articles on this case, and sometimes they even get his name wrong. He is a victim whose voice is constantly lost throughout this sordid narrative. So please allow me a moment to tell you about who he was before we continue. I also just want to thank Leonie Pretorius and the Pretorius family for sharing with me the following images and information. Jacques Pretorius was born on the 15th of January 1992. He had a younger brother and parents who loved him dearly. As a child, he loved playing sports and would always be seen with a ball in his hand. As he grew older, he played cricket and rugby. He was always busy and like many other little boys, 
He was always up to some kind of mischief, but he and his brother were the lights of their parents' lives. He also had a dearly beloved pet, a ringed-necked dove named Birdie. And whether engaging with his bird or with his friends and family, he was so well-liked and got along great with everybody. And so 2008 had rolled around, and he was in the middle of his grade 10 year, excited for what the future held in store for him. And so everything that had happened in his life had brought him to that moment. In the corridor, walking with his best friend to assembly, like any other ordinary Monday. They had heard a slight commotion and so they had both turned around to see what it was all about. The last words he had heard were uttered from Monet's mouth to the teenage girls. And in an instant, his carotid artery was severed as Monet swung his sword through the air. In only minutes, once realizing what had actually happened and despite his best friend's efforts to put pressure on the wound, his light and his life was extinguished. Just 16 years old. Someone who Monet didn't even know and whose name he would only learn days later. And as he lay on the ground in a pool of blood, chaos erupted. Everyone realized that this was no joke. This was very real. Students scattered in all directions. Someone yelled out, watch out, he's lost it. Someone else shouted, he's lost his mind. And Monet continued down the passageway. Another boy, a 17-year-old Stefan Bauer, had asked him, why are you doing this? Without answering, Monet had swung his sword and hit him on the left side of his head. Luckily, he would later survive after receiving emergency medical assistance. And perhaps Monet may have continued, if it wasn't for the brave efforts of two groundskeepers, Samuel Manamele and Joseph Cordesan, who, after seeing Monet swing the sword around, ran to him instead of away. Both men attempted to tackle him, however he sliced Manamele's arm by his elbow and cut Korasang's left cheek, face and ear, almost severing it off. Both men would be okay after receiving medical assistance. It's at this point that Monet suddenly stopped. Whether he actually realized what he was doing, or as many rumors suggest that he caught sight of his younger brother, we aren't entirely sure. But regardless, he had walked to the square where assembly is usually held, he had thrown his sword into the ground, and he had gone to sit on a low brick wall nearby. Moments later, his brother had approached him slowly, he had grabbed the sword, and he had run to safety with the weapon. And at this point, school staff were finally on the scene and they had approached Monet. He pulled off his mask, revealing his black painted face and somewhat dazed, he had looked around and asked them what had happened. He then followed up that question by explaining that Satan had told him if he didn't kill people by the end of the day, that he would be killed. The teachers explained what had happened and told him that he had killed someone. He immediately responded, but didn't I kill three people? Yeah, that's some immense clarity for someone who was in a daze just moments prior. He would later tell his parents, When I put on the mask, everything went dead quiet 
and my body started moving. I wanted to stop, but I couldn't. And then, as if he bunked class or he back-chatted a teacher, he was sent to the principal's office to await the police. He went along willingly. Fifteen minutes later, the police arrived and Monet was arrested without incident and taken to the Krugersdorp police station. After his arrest, his room was searched and that led to the findings which would later fuel media headlines. In his room, police had found tarot cards, cigarette lighters, books on wicker and even a hand-drawn Ouija board, an Afrikaans version that is. Instead of the traditional yes and no, there was ya near scrawled on the cardboard. Along with the items immediately linked to the occult, there were also detailed drawings of the school's floor plans, as well as the actions that each individual who would be involved in the attack was going to take. The plans themselves signaled intent, and the rest of the items would lead to the emerging satanic panic in Krugersdorp, and actually, in true butterfly effect fashion, the beginning of another insane case, which I will definitely mention shortly. So during this time, Monet was being held in the Krugersdorp prison, and he was evaluated by a psychiatrist, M.M. Molefi Letsejo. Letsejo went on to state that Monet had told him that he had seen a ghost in a field on a farm his parents rented, and that this ghost had instructed him to become a Satanist. He also noted that Monet showed signs of depression, but he had very good insight into the events that had occurred. However, he was completely lacking in emotion in that regard. Therefore, his recommendation was that Monet be sent for further evaluation. And so it was decided on the 27th of August that Monet would be sent for 30 days of mental evaluation at the Sterkfontein Psychiatric Hospital, as per section 77 and 78 of the Criminal Procedure Act. This was extended for an additional 30 days, after the psychologist involved requested additional time to complete his assessment. And here's why. During those initial 30 days, Monet was presenting with psychotic features. However, he lacked many of the hallmarks of someone truly suffering from mental illness with psychosis, as with schizophrenia patients, for example. This behavior baffled Franco Fisser, the man tasked with his assessment. It was only when the observation period was extended did Lisa, Monet's mother, come forward to speak to Fisser. She then made admissions that completely changed the game. She would go on to state that she was concerned about Monet's behavior and that she had been for a long time. He apparently had a history of petty theft and he had been known in the past to show many signs of aggression. She described him as a deep, eccentric sort of person who, as a young man, expressed pain and heartache, easier in the form of aggressive expression. She would also go on to state that he experimented with Dacha and he would use it sometimes twice a week. It also transpired that at some point, he had attempted to start a lab of sorts in his bedroom, but he had failed. Her final thought was that he had what she deemed as a criminal mind. 
Armed with this new information, I'm pretty sure that Fissa was now able to understand Monet to a fuller extent, and so he had confronted him. Shortly after the confrontation, Monet had admitted that his symptoms of psychosis were indeed faked. He was then found fit to stand trial, was determined as knowing the difference between right and wrong, and he was not diagnosed with any mental disorder. During the trial, social worker Annette Fakhir, who had testified in high-profile cases such as the Oscar Pistorius trial, testified to the court that Monet emotionally functioned at a younger age than his chronological age. Her report consisted of interviews with various people from his life, his parents, his school peers, the families of his victims, as well as the clinical psychologist who had evaluated him. It was later established in court that Monet's home environment was turbulent, with his parents having their own marital issues and those eventually having an effect on their children, Monet in particular. His mother had also suffered with her own mental health issues and at times she had been suicidal. Monet had a very close relationship with her. Furthermore, the relationship between father, who was incredibly domineering and strict, and his son was extremely strained, although during the trial you would never say so. In the social worker's report, she made the following recommendations. She recommended that the court take Monet's age into consideration. She also mentioned the consideration of a rehabilitative approach and advised therapy. She went on to say that Monet should be placed in a youth prison that has an environment conducive to therapeutic health. In her own words, Amongst grown-ups, he will not function normally. He would, in time, be very negatively influenced and eventually come out more aggressive. However, during the trial, it was also argued that Monet showed no real remorse for his actions and that he appeared blunted and emotionless, according to the prosecutor and expert testimony from Fissa. He really didn't show too much emotion throughout the trial too, even when images of the victim or the crime scene were shown. Fissa, the psychologist, concluded that Monet was dead set on presenting himself as a strong individual with no weaknesses. During the months of court proceedings, Monet's parents were there to support him at every session. It was evident that Michiel exercised much control over the family and Lisa did often seem to be silenced or instructed by him. However, during all public displays, the Haramses appeared to be the picture-perfect loving family. Down in prison, and they say, I don't know how to go on. 
Lorna is the one that actually lifting them up. As the proceedings finally came to a close, Monet pleaded guilty on all charges, including one of murder. The judge declared that he had acknowledged all elements of his crime. After the verdict and whilst in jail awaiting sentencing, one of his jail buddies, Lawrence, told media that prison warders had a soft spot for Monet and that, in his own words, Monet is a friendly guy with a good heart. He went on to state, It's just his prison friends and his family who really know him. All the things the media writes about Monet hurt his parents, and that's why I'm telling you these things. I'm not doing it to protect him. I want the world to know that there is another side. The prison warders really like him. We shared books and went to talk to the pastor. Monet is a God-fearing man, and he gave his heart to the Lord a long time ago. On the 10th of September 2009, Monet Haramza was sentenced to 20 years in prison, 18 years for the murder of Jacques Pretorius and 8 years for the attack of Stefan Bauer, 6 of those years to run concurrently with the initial murder sentence. He was also sentenced to 5 years for each of the other attacks which were set to run concurrently with the murder sentence. The judge explained that this sentence was given due to Monet's juvenile psychological disposition, as testified to by experts, lack of previous record and the inability of meeting the requirements for a minimum life sentence. He went on to state that the sentence must be balanced between the interests of the community, the victim and the convicted. He concluded that the mere fact that Monet was willing to embark on a violent attack to be noticed by his classmates was further evidence of his emotional and developmental problems. After the sentence was handed down, his parents immediately tried to console him and tell him in his father's own words to not worry. His parents both later publicly expressed the notion that they hoped that Monet would receive psychological help in prison and that they were both thankful that he did not receive a life sentence. He will be eligible for parole in 2024 and he will be 34 years old. The mother of the victim, however, Adele Becker, was incredibly unhappy with the sentence given and had hoped that he would be sentenced to life imprisonment. She in particular had struggled to deal with the loss of Jacques and for a while after his death, she would write him letters daily and take them to his grave. She also stated that she just could not forgive Monet for what he had done. So now that you know what was done, let's look at why and how this even happened in the first place. Firstly, because it was the most prevalent reason given for Monet's actions, let's explore the notion of a satanic panic. Also, a shout out to an amazing subscriber, BigFriendlyGiant69, who recently actually left a comment chatting about satanic panic and expressing an interest in learning more about the concept itself in South Africa. I'm going to touch on it briefly here, but this one's for you. So if you're not aware, South Africa, along with many other countries in the world, has experienced and to an extent still experiences what is termed satanic panic. 
So I have actually discussed this term, this concept, this period of time in more detail in the Valcom Killer Couple case that I did, as well as the Elise Parler case. I will link both of those into the description box. But for a quick catch up, satanic panic refers to a moral panic in regards to alleged occult and ritual abuse. Essentially, it also resulted in an increased fear of anything occult related, along with many false allegations or connections of crimes to malevolent forces. Oh, and fun fact, South Africa created the first, and possibly only, occult related crime units in the world. I do stand to be corrected though. During Monet's trial, the very founder of this now disbanded unit, a South African occult expert, Kubis Jonker, took the stand to share his thoughts on the case. He went on to state that although it appeared that Monet had been experimenting with Satanism, his involvement in such practices was superficial. But for me personally, it was his reasoning that was quite interesting. He deduced from his experience that Monet could not be a Satanist due to several factors. Firstly, Monet had candles of other colors, not just red and black in his room. Apparently, according to Corbus, black candles help call on the darkness and red candles call on the energy of blood. Secondly, the bedding and curtains in Monet's room were not red and black, the colors a practicing Satanist would have. Thirdly, on the day of the attack, he did not speak in any demonic language. Next, there were no blood smears on the wall, which are seen when Satanists turn to devilish acts, apparently. And lastly, the posters and the images in his bedroom had more resemblance to Eastern religion. And so the expert's verdict was in. Monet was not a Satanist. However, in a statement given by Monet's parents shortly after the incident had actually made the news back in 2008, they had said in Afrikaans, which I will just loosely translate, it was unfortunately Monet's experimentation with Satanism that gave him a kind of protection for his psyche. However, the damage was already done, as the attack was classed as satanic, and the chaos that ensued afterwards would have such devastating consequences that no one could have anticipated. So, if you haven't heard about the butterfly effect, it basically refers to the theory that even the slightest change in one place or point can lead to drastically different results or outcomes. So why am I telling you this? Don't worry, I'll make it make sense right now. When this case first broke in Krugersdorp, panic ensued, as the people in the area were also deeply religious. At the time, a certain pastor, whose name you very well may recognize if you've watched my previous episodes, Ria Hrunefalt, started what would later be known as the Know Your Enemy religious course that aided to tackle the issue of Satanism in the community. And it was through this course that the infamous Cecilia Stain met Rhea. And it was there that their long and sordid encounter began, which would ultimately end in the cult killings of 11 people. If you know, you know. And if you don't, here's the episode. So that very initial encounter was created and spurred on by Monet's crime. 
talk about a small world. So besides the occult forces, many also believed that the music that Monet listened to had a role in the crime that he committed. Slipknot were immediately put under the scope as it was their masks that Monet had attempted to recreate and it was their music that he listened to. I mean, this isn't even the first time though that music, in particular heavy metal music, has been blamed for violence. The infamous Columbine High School Massacre back in 1999, in which Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, two grade 12 pupils, murdered 15 students and injured 24, was said to have been inspired by violent video games and music. However, none of those theories were definitively proven. I mean, if you think about it, how many people listen to heavy metal music or play violent video games? Hundreds? Thousands? Millions? And yet, how many of those people will go on to commit a crime? There are, of course, obvious parallels between Monet's case and theirs, in that there was a plan in place prior to the attacks However, Monet's plan was far less thought out. The overall desired effect for both Monet and the Columbine attackers was to shock and intimidate, in the latter's case to get back at those who had bullied them. Back then, the musical influence blamed was Marilyn Manson. This time around, it was Slipknot. After the band came under fire, Corey Taylor, the frontman of Slipknot, had said, Obviously, I'm disturbed by the fact that people were hurt and someone died. As far as my responsibility for that goes, it stops there, because I know our message is actually very positive. I'm not encouraging anybody to kill anybody. I encourage our fans to express themselves, to stick together and to help each other. The thing is though, right? When something shocking like this happens, people are always looking to point the finger and ultimately show that it's one single thing that is to blame. But like I've discussed in many previous episodes, the onset of violence and many crimes is often a result of multiple factors engaging with one another, where more often than not, there is a genetic predisposition at play. However, it's always far quicker and easier to pick the most obvious explanation. In order to truly understand this case, less ignorance and more introspection is needed. And there was actually a really interesting link posed between Monet's actions and religion. But not in the way you think. Within strict conservative Protestant homes, researchers have noted that corporal punishment is seen as a divine mandate. The belief is that a child's will must be broken by the parents in order for both parties to be saved from hell when judgment day arrives. So for Monet, the troubles began at home. As it was later divulged, his home life was allegedly unstable. A father is often a young man's main role model, and they hold major responsibility in teaching their children the way to not only engage with, but also to view the world. Monet, however, allegedly lived in fear of his father, Michiel who often crossed the proverbial line when it came to corporal punishment. Now, the corporal punishment debate is really always ongoing. I mean, I could spend hours talking about it. But what is clear from the situation is that these consistent beatings 
led to more anger and aggression within Monet. He would express feelings and thoughts about bashing his father's head into something as retribution. However, he never acted on these feelings as he was far smaller in stature than his father. So the beatings may have passed, but what remained afterwards was pent-up anger aggression, and an even more vulnerable child. Children learn from their parents, and what Monet learned was that violence was not only a way of life, but violence was a way in which problems were handled. His father demonstrated this to him time and time again. And unfortunately, this behavior and belief system can be incredibly dangerous in a vulnerable child's mind. Monet soon accepted that hurting those smaller and weaker than you is perfectly acceptable. Violence was a solution. And unfortunately, where the violence was physical at home, it was emotional at school. As I had previously mentioned, Monet was small for his age, and he didn't look like your average metric boy. This not only influenced the way in which he was viewed by others, but also the way in which he viewed himself. Society has this idea, which is quite heavily ingrained, about what a boy and what a man should be like. Within males, strength is admired, weakness is not. It's even as simple as participation in sports being seen as the mark of a successful young man in school. There is a very specific blueprint of masculinity that exists. Monet, unfortunately, didn't fit this blueprint, and he didn't fit the standard mold of a young man, and so, for that, he was bullied. It was clear to the experts evaluating Monet that the impact of the years of bullying affected him emotionally, developmentally, and it affected the way in which he related to his peers. Bullying is an issue that, time and time again, showcases the cruelty that lies within society and sometimes even the youth. It is, however, a learned behavior. No child is born a bully. The effects of bullying are often long-term, and if you've ever been a victim of bullying, you will know that, honestly, that level of pain may decrease over time, but it never really goes away. These long-term effects include an increased risk of depression and mental health issues to lowered self-esteem and feelings of isolation. Couple these effects with a genetic predisposition and it truly is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And given the fact that violence within schools is so common these days, the combination of these factors can in many cases be deadly. I mean, just on a side note, a survey published in 2008 by the Center for Justice and Crime Prevention in South Africa found that, at the time, 15.3% of learners in grades 3 to 12 have been victims of school violence, whilst 11% of primary school learners and 15% of secondary school learners say that they had been threatened with violence. Principals from various schools participating in the school safety program, which was later established after Monet's attack, confirmed that it was common to find learners with knives, 
screwdrivers, and even sometimes guns. Psychologists believe that for children to resort to such levels of violence, there is an indication of considerable and sustained exposure to extreme violent situations at home or in wider society. So for Monet, school was not a safe place, and that was evident upon further investigation and inspection by the psychologist and social worker. And when he got home, that too was not exactly a safe space. He ended up searching for meaning in all the wrong places. He found ways of expressing himself through the tarot cards and sword collections, through the music he listened to, and even through attempting to become a Satanist. He even at one point thought that if he could be a famous ninja, then he would be someone. However, along the way, each attempt to search for deeper meaning failed. What he did learn from the failures, though, was how to manipulate and morph into different versions of himself. The psychologist who had examined him stated that he was one of the most manipulative and calculated people that he had ever met. He noted that Monet presented with different facades, timid in one moment but completely unaffected in the next. He would change his facade to suit the situation. This is also evident when looking at the way in which his prison buddies viewed him as well as the way in which he interacted with the victim's family many years later. During an early parole hearing for Monet in 2019, which the family of Jacques Pretorius attended, when given the chance to speak to the family, he said that he had nothing to say to them. He showed no remorse for his actions. And this is over 10 years later, when Monet was almost 30 years old. He had also apparently written them a letter of apology prior to his initial sentencing, but it's obvious that that was not done with sincerity. Monet was a lost soul, that much is clear. No one took much notice of him, at school or at home, thus all of the red flags were missed. And when looking at the motives behind the crime that he committed, it wasn't the influence of Satan or heavy metal music, but rather factors within his immediate environment. Growing up amidst violence, subjected to cruelty from all sides, Monet searched for meaning amidst the chaos of his mind. Unfortunately, the existence of a potential genetic predisposition that, combined with the multitude of environmental factors at play, was just a recipe for disaster. But regardless of whether he's just a product of his environment, the fact remains that he took an innocent life. A boy who never had the chance to grow up, finish school, fall in love, get married, or even have children. He robbed a family of their loved one. He robbed a family of their son, of their brother, of their nephew. And although one day, perhaps very soon, he will be out again in the world, Jacques Pretorius will never have that opportunity. Thank you for sticking with me through this difficult episode and thank you to the Pretorius family for sharing Jacques' story and pictures with me. Until next time, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are.
Bye.